This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hey, Murder Fam, and welcome back to Serial Killing, a podcast. My name is Alyssa Carroll, and this is Serial Saturday where every Saturday we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. This week's podcast will be on Joseph James D'Angelo as the Golden State Killer. Joseph James D'Angelo was born on November 8, 1945 in Bath, New York. So let's get into some history for that time. And World War II was the talk of the times. The infamous Adolf Hitler moved into his underground bunker as he knew his war was nearly over. Soon he and his wife of one day would die from self-inflicted gunshot wounds, supposedly. Joseph Goebbels and his wife also killed their six children and then themselves supposedly. <laughs> U.S. troops liberated Buchenwald, a German concentration camp, as well as the Dachau camp. British troops liberated the Belsen concentration camp, where they discovered there was no running water, along with thousands of dead and rotting corpses. The Soviet Union reached Berlin as World War II was finally at its end. And then we had the Nuremberg Trials beginning, which was a war crimes trial where charges were brought against 24 high-ranking Nazi officials for war crimes and crimes against humanity. The United States took control of the island of Okinawa. A Japanese submarine sunk the USS Indianapolis, and the result of that was the death of 883 men, although many of them were actually killed by sharks while they were raiding to be rescued. The United States also dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki after the Emperor of Japan announced their surrender on the radio. So if one were to live during these times, the cost of a new house was, on average, $4,600 or rent was about $60 a month. The average wage was $2,400 a year, and the cost of an average new car was a little over $1,000. 
and a gallon of fuel was just 15 cents. So this was the atmosphere that he was born into. His parents were Joseph James D'Angelo Sr. and Kathleen Louise de Grote. Joseph Sr. was born in 1920 in Watkins Glen, New York to Samuel and Mary Frances, both of whom were from Italy. Samuel would die before Joseph Jr. was even born and Mary Frances died when Joseph Jr. was only six years old. Joseph Sr. joined the Army Air Force in 1942 when he was 22 years old. After basic training in Biloxi, Mississippi, he was deployed with his combat group in 1943. He was an airman in World War II and was actually awarded seven clusters to the Air Medal for meritorious achievement. He was wounded in action over Australia, but flew in raids on targets in Italy, France, Austria, and Germany. Needless to say, he was a decorated hero. Kathleen de Groot was born in 1923, the middle of five children in Elmira or Elmira, New York. Her father Charles was born in 1891 and her mother Helen in 1902. Now Kathleen was described as a beautiful person and a wonderful mother. We'll get back to that as that might not necessarily be the truth, but regardless, she did work as a waitress at a Denny's diner. Joseph Sr. and Kathleen married in a Baptist church in New York in 1941. They pretty quickly had a daughter, Rebecca, before Joseph Sr. was shipped off to war. Joseph Sr. and Kathleen went on to have Joseph Jr., then Constance in 1948, and finally John in 1949. So, altogether, the couple had four children. So, in 1951, Joseph Sr. was a staff sergeant in the Air Force and stationed in Washington State. Now, a relative of Joseph Jr.'s, his nephew actually, stated that the family had had to move to Germany as his father was stationed there for a bit, and that at the age of 10 years old or so, Joseph Jr. was forced to witness his seven-year-old sister Constance, or Connie, be raped by two airmen in a warehouse in Germany. They had been playing there together when the two men walked in. Joseph Jr.'s nephew being Connie's son, of course, so he heard this from his mother. When Joseph Jr. and Connie got back home and told their parents what had happened, they were instructed to never speak of it again. This nephew also stated that all of the D'Angelo children suffered physical and emotional abuse from their father, who reportedly also physically assaulted Kathleen in front of the children, and it is said that Kathleen was no saint when it came to how she treated her own children either. In fact, Joseph Sr. abused his wife so badly in one incident, the military police in Germany warned him that he would be kicked out if he touched his wife again. It was also said that Kathleen punished her children to the point that she left marks on their body. 
Now, sometime between 1958 and 1959, Joseph's parents divorced and Kathleen took the children and moved to the Sacramento, California area. Joseph Sr., get this, wound up living in South Korea, where he went on to have three more children with a woman there, giving them the exact same names as his first three children, as if he completely replaced them with a new family. So strange. Joseph went to Mills Junior High in Rancho Cordova, California, and then went on to Folsom High School in 1961. Yes, close to Folsom State Prison. While in high school, he played baseball. Fairly unremarkable, not unpopular. The family's then-neighbors described Joseph as an average kid, a nice guy who was helpful and often doing yard work for his mother. Now, on a very rare occasion, they could hear him yelling profanity, but then again, he was a teenager, and, well, they can be unpredictable. At some point, either after his sophomore year or possibly just very early in his junior year of high school, Joseph dropped out, and he earned his GED in 1964, his high school equivalent. He then joined the Navy and graduated basic training at the Naval Training Center in San Diego. It was also at this point that his mother, Kathleen, married a World War II veteran named Jack Bosanko. So, that was Joseph's childhood, at least as much as I could find of it. So, let's take a look. We know his parents had a less than loving marriage with reports of spousal abuse. As we all know, domestic violence is used to establish power and control over another person. This will become very important in how Joseph treats his victims. Many studies show the negative effects of being the victim of the abuse, but what about the children who witness it? Well, children who witness domestic abuse can develop many different negative effects based on their age, where they're at when they see it. Brain imaging shows children exposed to domestic violence can change the overall structure of the brain and can affect the way the connections work together. It negatively affects cognition, behavior, and emotional development. They can develop depression and or anxiety and or anxiety and can go on to be bullies, get into fights, lying, cheating, and then on to criminal behavior. And then some go on to be abusers themselves. A writer, Judith L. Herman, stated, quote, Repeated trauma in childhood forms and deforms the personality. The child trapped in an abusive environment is faced with formidable tasks of adaptation, unquote. While the family was stationed in Germany, 10-year-old Joseph was forced to watch his 7-year-old sister get raped by two grown military men. The trauma of this is not to be understated. Guys, not even getting into the distress and likely huge amount of pain his sister was experiencing. The distress of watching this happen to her and not being able to stop it would be immense. 
The overwhelming amount of fear and terror is unimaginable in the moment of said event, the results of which the survivor experiences symptoms and behaviors that are often organized around management of intense fear and loss. So they become preoccupied managing the symptoms of the trauma. Some of the behaviors or thoughts displayed for someone who has witnessed sexual abuse are social impairment, isolation, sleep disturbance, intimacy issues, disassociation, disconnect from thought and feeling, flashbacks and triggers, hypervigilance, fear, guilt, shame, the list is endless. These in turn can turn into psychiatric conditions such as PTSD, dissociative disorders, and conduct disorders. And in Joseph's case, it then goes on and progresses into aggressive or sexualized play, anger, edginess and agitation, irritability, mood swings, overeating, and clinginess or separation anxieties. Then after he and his sister went home to report the assault, wanting their parents to protect them, they were told to be quiet, to never speak of it again, which would go against every instinct the children would have. I mean, how disappointed and terrified would these two children be knowing that there would be no justice? Can you imagine your own parents? Come on. It is likely that Joseph dropped out of high school to join the military as was not entirely uncommon during those times and also because he came from a family of men who just joined the military, period. I think he believed that that was just what he was supposed to do. Now let's carry on. So after basic training, Joseph was sent to serve during Vietnam War. He was a damage controlman, which is an emergency repair specialist on two different ships. He was in the military for 22 months before returning home, sometime in 1966. From 1966 to 1968, he, when he was between the ages of 22 and 23, we don't really know what he was up to. But starting in 1968, he attended Sierra College in Rockland, California, basically a suburb of Sacramento. He studied law enforcement and also met an 18-year-old young lady by the name of Bonnie Jean Caldwell, and the two began dating. Bonnie was also working as a lab assistant, and Joseph was working for a crane and hoist company. He apparently also had affiliations to several clubs, including a diving association. They announced their engagement as Joseph graduated from college with an associate's degree in police science, with honors, I might add. Now, I dug around and found an interview with Bonnie to find out why she eventually broke off the engagement, because uh, most sources had no idea why but I found an actual interview with her. Now, according to a CBS Sacramento interview with Bonnie, the police interviewed her after he had been captured and they asked her about his habits and behavior while they were together. 
She stated that she never felt coerced into having sex with him, and he never asked if he could bind her up in any way, but that when they were intimate, it was, quote, exhausting and painful, unquote, and that he seemed oblivious to her pain. In the spring of 1971, she broke up with him. Bonnie states that days later, she woke up to him tap tap tapping on her bedroom window. She opened the window to see what he wanted and he said to her, quote, get dressed, we're going to Reno, unquote. She said he had a gun pointed at her face. She immediately ran into her father's room, absolutely terrified, understandably. Her father then rushed outside and one way or another convinced Joseph to leave Bonnie alone from now on. So I'd say that's a pretty good reason why she dumped him. But he went on to enroll at Sacramento State University and earned his bachelor's degree in criminal justice. He then apparently got more police training at the College of the Sequoias in Visalia before completing almost another entire year of a police internship at the Roseville Police Department. So it goes without saying, guys, Joseph was very well educated in police work and what to look for after any kind of crime. In 1973, he worked as a police officer in Exeter, California, which is a small town very near Visalia. His primary job was helping with the burglary unit, and he also met and married Sharon, and they settled for a time in Exeter. Now, during this time, early in 1973, there was a string of robberies that took place around Visalia that were later blamed on a suspect they called the Visalia Ransacker. There were other names, such as Cordova Cat Burglar and the Exeter Ransacker. So, the Visalia Ransacker was a serial prowler, a voyeur, burglar, and eventual murderer. Most of the crimes involved him, who we now know was Joseph, breaking into people's houses and tearing apart the interior, stealing mostly small items that weren't worth as much and leaving other items alone that were worth quite a bit. And he even scattered women's underwear everywhere. And sometimes he would hit multiple homes in one day like in the late 1974 year where he committed 12 separate burglaries in one day. Now, after a year and a half of this, Joseph took it to the next level. During a night in September 1975, a man awoke to the sounds of something going on in his home. He began to yell and he ran through the house, only to see a masked man trying to kidnap his 16-year-old daughter. The masked man, of course, was Joseph. He turned and shot the man twice, who managed to get back into his home, but then later died. Joseph left the teen girl and fled. Then the next month, a masked Joseph had just jumped a fence when he was faced with a detective who was watching the area. Joseph attempted to shoot the detective, but he only shattered the man's flashlight. 
The detective was unharmed but did not recognize Joseph in the darkness. After that, Joseph was done lurking about the Visalia area. There were other rapes in the area that they haven't yet connected to Joseph at the time of this recording. It's all still pretty fresh. His wife Sharon studied, passed the bar, and had become a lawyer. The couple then moved into Sacramento in 1976. This is the time when the East Area Rapist would begin his reign of terror. Joseph began stalking middle-class neighborhoods at night, searching for women who were alone. Almost always these women lived near a school, a creek, a trail, or some other form of open area where it would make it really easy for him to escape. When he was seen, he was always able to get away, though he did shoot and seriously injure someone who had decided to give chase. Most of his future victims would have already been aware of a prowler outside of their home previous to the actual attack. He would even call future victims on the phone just to get a good idea about their daily routines. From 1976 to 1979, he committed at least 50 rapes. Sometimes he even enjoyed breaking into the homes of women whose husbands were there. He'd separate the couple, threatening to kill the wife if he heard the husband move, and like tying the husband up and stacking plates and whatnot on the man's back. So if he moved, obviously the plates would fall and break. And then he'd go and rape his wife, and sometimes repeatedly for hours while the husband was forced to listen. A military policeman at a nearby Air Force base, along with his wife, were out walking their dog one evening. Joseph confronted them in the street, and they both ran, but he chased them and shot them both dead. In December 1977, someone claiming to be the East Area Rapist sent a poem to the Sacramento Bee, the Sacramento Mayor's Office, and a local television station. It is believed that Joseph wrote this, and it reads, quote, Excitement's cave. All those mortals surviving birth upon facing maturity take inventory of their worth to prevailing society. Choosing values becomes a task. oneself must seek satisfaction. The selected route will unmask character when plans take action. Accepting some work to perform at fixed pay but promise for more is a recognized social norm, as is decorum seeking lore. Achieving while others lifting should be cause for deserving fame. Leisure tempts excitement seeking. What's right and expected seems tame. Jesse James has been seen by all and Son of Sam has an author. Others now feel temptations call. Sacramento should make an offer. To make a movie of my life that will pay for my planned exile. Just now I'd like to add the wife of a mafia lord to my file. Your East Area Rapist and Deserving Pest. See you in the press or on TV. Unquote. 
That's actually not a bad poem. I was pretty impressed. Now keep in mind that Joseph was a married man who was working as a police officer and was getting ready to begin having children of his own, three daughters in the 1980s. No one really suspected him of anything except he did get caught stealing a hammer and dog repellent and was therefore fired as a police officer. He received six months probation. When family members asked him why he stole those things, his response was, because I could. Some of the investigators did believe that the perpetrator might very well be a fellow law officer. Once he broke into the home of a woman and her children, naked from the waist down, I might add, and demanded they freeze or he would kill them. Joseph would get angry with some of his victims and once said, quote, I hate you. I hate you. I hate you, Bonnie. He wailed while lying down next to a woman he had just raped. Bonnie, of course, being the first girl that he was engaged to. Some victims remember hearing him sob and whimpering after the attacks and mumble in a high-pitched voice, kind of like a child, saying things like, quote, Mommy, please help me. I'm sorry, Mom. I don't want to do this, Mommy. Unquote. And at this point, sketches of the rapist were being circulated, and one in particular showed a man with a noticeable nose and mustache. The sketch looked amazingly similar to Joseph, and yet, no one suspected. Detectives also surmised that the perpetrator had some past military experience, which we do know Joseph had. The suspect took great delight in calling his victims after the attack and taunting them on the phone. Only a few of the victims could hear children and possibly a woman in the background, which led them to believe that he was indeed a family man. So, you know... Joseph got fired and he got a job at a local grocery store distribution center and he worked there until actually his retirement. He was mostly a mechanic working on the delivery trucks. As he and his family settled into family life, their new neighbors definitely noticed that Joseph had a serious anger problem. Some of the neighborhood kids didn't want to even play with Joseph's girls because they were afraid of him. One said he was known to oddly pace in circles in his backyard, yelling at no one. So in July 1979, Joseph moved his family to Southern California, and this is when he really began to murder his victims. From October 1979 to July 1981, Joseph murdered 10 more victims. His first attempt was not successful, and the victim heard him say to himself, quote, I'll kill him, unquote. Other victims, not so lucky. He shot and killed victims after he raped them. Some victims he actually bludgeoned to death. With these attacks and murders, DNA samples were taken and stored until a time that the technology would be sufficient to test them as the leads grew cold. Surviving victims said that their attacker was a white male, around 5 feet 10 inches tall, athletic build, sometimes they said he was kind of chubby, 
and that he was physically agile and capable of sprinting and scaling fences. The authorities knew he had type A blood, but his sperm did not contain blood group antigens, making him a non-secretor. Oh, and the surviving victim said he had a small penis. And then after the last murder in 1981, the murders stopped. This is most likely due to him becoming a father. He continued to work as a mechanic. His neighbors said he was very mouthy at them, not a bit afraid to get into verbal altercations with people. People could also clearly hear him having these epic shouting battles with his wife, as they described. After five years of laying low, in May 1986, Joseph used a pipe wrench and bludgeoned an 18-year-old girl to death after violently raping her. And then, nothing. There were no more attacks. There were threatening phone calls all the way through until 2001, but no physical attacks. Also, he and his wife legally separated in 1991, but technically never divorced. So a speculative psychological profile was compiled primarily by Leslie D'Ambrosia, and these are the characteristics of the serial killer. This was before they knew that it was Joseph. Okay, so uh, the perpetrator would have an emotional age equivalent to a 26 to 30 year old at the time that the murders began in 1979 engaged in paraphilic behavior and brutal sex in his personal life, engaged in sex with prostitutes, had some knowledge of police investigative methods and evidence gathering techniques, sexually functional, capable of ejaculation with consenting and non-consenting partners, dressed well and would not stand out in upscale neighborhoods lived or worked near Ventura, California in 1980. Good physical condition. Skilled, experienced cat burglar and may have begun as such. Had a criminal record as a teenager which was expunged. Had some means of income but did not work in the early morning hours. Intelligent and articulate. Neat and well organized in his personal life and drove a well-maintained car peeped in the windows of many people who were not attacked, self-assured and confident. And that's the end of that list. And we see that some of it is spot on, but some of it was pretty off the mark. Now they believe that he had stopped possibly due to being incarcerated for some other crime, but we know that's not the case. They even thought he might have moved to another country, but again, that's not true. So, since the cases went completely cold for so many years, how was he finally caught? Well, in 2016, the authorities decided to send his DNA through a genetic genealogy site called GED Match, and they found a distant relative of Joseph D'Angelo, which also included family members directly related to a very distant grandfather down the tree. So they were able to build 25 different family trees, and that was narrowed down based on gender, age, place of residence, and so on, until only Joseph remained. 
They then waited and went through his trash and found a tissue, as well as collecting a sample from the door handle of his car. They sent it off, and it was a match to the Golden State Killer, along with the other crimes he committed under the other given names. At first, Joseph tried to say that, quote, an inner personality named Jerry forced him to commit the waves of crimes that ended abruptly in 1986. Unquote. And he said, quote, I didn't have the strength to push him out. He made me. He went with me. It was like in my head. I mean, he's a part of me. I didn't want to do those things. I pushed Jerry out and had a happy life. I did all those things. I destroyed all their lives. So now I've got to pay the price. Unquote. So on June 29th, 2020, in a plea deal that would spare him the death penalty, the now 75-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo pled guilty to 13 murders, kidnappings, and rapes in total. So what do you guys think about him calling out to his mommy after assaulting women? Or his raving anger at his ex-girlfriend exclaiming that he hated her in front of his other victims? What about this supposed other personality in his brain? Is it true that he had a tremendous amount of anger towards women and that could be why he was so sadistic in his treatment of his victims? Joseph has been kind of loosely compared to Dennis Rader. He actually had quite a bit in common with Dennis Rader, who was the BTK killer. Both were born in 1945. Both served in the military. Both worked in law enforcement, Joseph an actual cop, and Dennis Rader was just a compliance officer. Both watched their victims for a while. Both wanted complete control over their victims. Both knew how to stay under the radar and hide behind a mask of normalcy. But what do you think? Leave me a comment on Instagram, at serial underscore killing, or on the YouTube channel, Consider becoming a sponsor and thank you so, so much for listening. I appreciate every one of you more than you will ever know. Thank you so much and have a great day.